I think that you are an entrepreneur because you have that sense of purpose and lack of fear. That's the voice of Elizabeth de los Pinos, founder and CEO of Aura Biosciences, headquartered in Boston. Listen in to hear insights from Elizabeth about leadership in biopharma and how Aura is working to envision new ways to treat cancer. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth de los Pinos, founder and CEO of Aura Biosciences, headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to BioBoss, Elizabeth. Hello, John. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. What led you to your role as founder and CEO of Aura Biosciences? I have been driven by science all my life throughout my career. I wanted to learn more about the molecular biology of cancer. The second driver was patients, and that was very much related to my father, who was a doctor, and he was very inspirational to tell me that I should work to help others and that I should really work hard to make sure that uh, my work would help cancer patients. So science and patients, that's the, the mix. And how did you make that big step from that passion and that interest to saying, I want to lead a biopharma company. I want to found one. I think that you are an entrepreneur because you have that sense of purpose and lack of fear. I wanted to do something big and I knew that by working at any of the pharma companies that uh, were accessible to me, uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. And because I'm brave and um, I'm passionate and I have a sense of purpose, I decided to do it myself. When you looked at the options for how you could take that passion about science and patients and create something new, in this case, oral biosciences, how did you go through the process of fixing and focusing on what particular part of the science you would take forward? The initial scientific driver was an enthusiasm for the biology of viruses, because viruses are uniquely related to cancer. And I thought that that relationship would allow us to develop a better drug, a better class of drugs. That initial concept, I went on and asked a number of top-tier virologists for their opinion. And they said, yes, I think this is a good scientific basis for you to try this approach. That's the, the initiation or the early steps of putting the, the science into, into work. Can you recall, was there a moment as an undergraduate, as a graduate, as a postdoc, anywhere along the academic cycle, was there ever a time that you recall saying, this idea about viruses, this has really intrigued me. I don't know why or how, but this really has grabbed a hold of me. Do you remember anything like that? Yes. Uh, it was so um, strong that I couldn't sleep. And I was all day long looking at patents and publications to see if anyone else had done anything similar to what I was thinking I could do. And I couldn't. And the more I couldn't find it, the more excited and the um, and driven I became. So, um, you know, it's a combination of, again, the intellectual knowledge, but then uh, the imagination. 
What was it you were hoping to achieve by founding oral biosciences that you could not achieve someplace else or in a different way? I wanted a transformational drug. I didn't want to follow the steps of anyone else. I wanted a, the moonshot, the absolute uh, breakthrough, and I was willing to take the risk. Did you find yourself second guessing as most of us do when we step out and expose ourselves? Or did you, once you were, your head was down, it was down? I always say you start. And once you start, there's only future. One of the things I've noticed about my conversations with the founders and CEOs over the last couple of years is that many of us have, of course, our meetings at times from a home office. And every now and then a cat will step into the frame, a child will appear. And it, it has brought up in conversation in BioBoss this idea that sometimes family members will c- come to the CEO or founder afterwards and say something along the lines of, I didn't know that's what you did, mom. I didn't know that's what you did. Dad, I didn't know that's what you did. Spouse, you just talk all day? People evidently have a different picture of what goes on maybe in the lab or maybe in a big conference room or something. But the question I'm trying to get is, what does a biopharma CEO do all day, all night. I know it never stops, but what what is the work? When the pandemic hit, we were all forced, all my family were forced to work together. Uh, It was the greatest gift. My little one sat at the table with me and uh, we were both working. He was doing remote school and I was doing my remote job. He was fascinated because he saw firsthand what was the job of a biopharma CEO. One of the key things that he said is, you talk to so many different people. That's true. Usually, technical jobs are silos. Um, You're very good in analytical. You talk about analytical development all day. You are a banker. You talk about capital raising all day. A biopharma CEO is like the director of an orchestra. You have to play the violins first, but you have to silence the drums. And then when you want the music play, you welcome the cello. So that's how you have to talk to a variety of personalities, a variety of people, and at the end of the day, make them work together so that we can have a concert. A conductor has to study the score. A conductor has to be well studied in music theory. A conductor needs to have an understanding of the individual players in the orchestra that he or she is melding how does how does the conductor, or in your case, the biopharm CEO, how do you decide what to do at a given time, given that there's not enough time to do probably most of what you're trying to do? A company is a living thing. Sometimes you have to give more attention to a particular area of the company, and others you have to give more attention to the capital raising. And, and it's never the same. And you know it because there is like a breathing organism. You have to have certain amount of information to be able to credibly convince an investor to give you more money. But at the same time, you have to have the vision of what you're gonna do from there on. I always think that you're always five years ahead of everyone else, but you're five minutes behind everyone else too. So that's that's kind of like how I, it's a difficult answer, but I guess it's uh, also a little bit of a gut feeling on how you, you build it, you envision it. What have you learned over the years about which management approach works best for you? I am very simplistic sometimes. And so I use the three C's to my management approach. The first one is care. 
And not usually you see people caring as managements because I am a mother and I'm a woman. The first thing that I characterize myself is caring for people, caring for patients. So care. The second C is consensus. I hate to impose. I try to reach consensus across my executive team, across the people that we work with, across the board meeting, so that we have an easygoing management uh, versus an aggressive or conflict-filled management. So that's the second C. The third C, I would say you should guess, but it's courage. Um, because of course, uh, we're doing things that are unprecedented. We're the first ones, we're setting the precedent for others to follow. Can you remember when you were eight or nine or 10 or whatever is the appropriate age and you probably had an image of what you wanted to be when you were a grown up? It was likely the kind of thing that you thought what your parents would want you to do if you're like me and most people. But can you remember that? And what was that image you had at that time? <laughs> you're gonna laugh at this one. I wanted to be Madame Curie. And um, even my grandmother called me the Madame Curie sometimes. Um, and uh, it was kind of like the passion for science at the time. And I, I wanted to, um, to discover. I, I, I was driven by the enthusiasm of molecular medicine. My dad was a doctor. He was telling me, you know, there's so much coded in the DNA that we don't know. And, and I was like, oh, I want to discover it. I want to I create new medicines based on this new code, and new, this new knowledge of molecular medicine. Um, and so, so that's, that's what I thought I was going to be, I guess, um, a discovery scientist. It turned out that I ended doing it as a company. Did you have any image of yourself as a leader early on? I guess Madame Curie would, you would think of as a leader in addition to being a scientist. I've always been not a leader, but I'd say a little different than anyone else surrounding me. So um, I did not fit into the, um, I would say, definition of professions that uh, were in, in an early Spain in Barcelona, when they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to, you know, discover drugs. And they said, ah, so you want to sell aspirins? And I said, like, no, 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 not sell them. I want to discover the new modern aspirin. Being different, not really being a leader, maybe being different and being okay with being different. Ellie, when people say to you, who is Aura Biosciences? It will depend on the audience, of course, but how do you like to answer? It's a company that's developing a complete new drug to treat cancer patients. It's new drugs and cancer. Those are the three, you know, unique words that define us. And for people who are somewhat conversant with our field, they may launch right into, oh, it sounds like, and then sometimes there's a process of weaning people away from that, saying, well, it's actually not this, it's this. What What is that process like? Yes, and then it's like, oh, are you like Pfizer? And I would say, well, we're not, because we're first thing doing a class of drugs that's never been done before using viruses. And secondly, we're doing it for initially for patients that have had no drugs approved for 50 years, which are patients that have cancers in their eyes. And so not only we're trying to prevent them from dying, we're trying to prevent them from being blind. So usually when they hear the word virus, they either associate you with a vaccine, right? Oh, are you using a virus like a vaccine? Or they associate you with, with gene therapy because viruses are the key tool for gene therapy. 
when I'm in that kind of like two fields and I'm trying to differentiate what we do, we say we are not a gene therapy because we're not trying to correct a gene with a virus. We're trying to kill a cancer cell. So we're certainly a therapeutic. We may be using a virus shell, but not to correct the gene. So that's how we differentiate from gene therapy. When they try to say, are you a vaccine? Then I said, no, because we're treating cancer and we're not preventing an infectious disease. But we're also learning from all of the vaccine development so that we can manufacture our drug. So we, we kind of like bridge disciplines in molecular biology and modern medicine. That's what you do, right? So, but you clearly are creating a very novel class of drugs. When you get that nod of, oh, I now understand. Do you, how do you go about different, how do you go about describing that your work is intended to kill the cancer, but also to activate the immune system. It's, it's the, got this dual thing going. How do you go about that? Yes, and I uh, love our approach because of that. Usually for cancer treatment, we've been thinking about giving a very toxic drug to kill the cancer cell. What we do is deliver the toxic drug with a virus, and then the virus activates the immune system. It signals the body that, you have an infection, like an infectious disease at the tumor site, and all your immune system will attack it. It's like a double punch. We've learned that the immune system is so critical and it can help so much for cancer treatment. But we've also learned that without the power of very toxic drugs to kill the cancer, the immune system alone is not enough. So combining both, it's ideal within the, the same treatment. And that's why I think this is potentially going to transform the treatment of cancer. How does the Aura Biosciences Pipeline express your vision for the company? Initially, it expresses my vision because we're very focused in the ocular oncology franchise, where not only there is ocular melanoma, our first indication, but many other eye cancers or cancers that are star in the eye that have had no innovation. So that focus initially of our pipeline is the absolute determination of my vision, where if we were successful, we would make a difference for patients that had nothing available. The second vision is now cancer is not just ocular oncology. Our technology can help many more patients. So let's expand that. And the remaining of the pipeline is broader oncology indications like bladder cancer, for example. And so that's how I'm envisioning the growth of the company, owning ocular oncology as a landmark of innovation and bringing science to patients and then growing into oncology to leverage that potential across. In that two-stage uh, realization of vision. Do you find the word platform helpful or not helpful when you talk about this multiple stage? Platform is because when you define a new class of drugs, it's not just one, right? You learn from that initial approach and, and you improve it, you adjust it, you grow the pipeline with that new concept. So by default is a platform because by default, it's a drug or a class of drugs that has never been tested before. Some people like platforms, so others, some others don't. Uh, I think that for us, it's by default a platform. 
How would you describe the mechanism of action of your lead candidate? Our lead candidate has a dual mechanism of action. The first step is by delivering, the virus-like particle delivers a cytotoxic payload that directly is getting into the cancer cell. It doesn't bind any other cell, normal cell in the eye. Once it's binding the cancer cell, you activate the drug with infrared light. So that's another key part of the mechanism of action. Our drug is non-toxic unless you activate it, which makes it extremely safe because you only activate it at the tumor. The second, and that, that, that leads to a direct necrosis, a direct cytotoxicity of the cancer cell. And the cell dies in a way that's highly proimmunogenic. What that means is that instead of dying slowly, it dies fast. And a fast death that's driven by damage usually is a sign for the immune system that something wrong's happening. The second alarm to the immune system is the virus. Because we're delivering this drug with a virus, the immune system is like, oh, something is wrong. Something is dying in a way that, I, that I'm not used to, and there is a virus there. And so we have all of these signals that usually turn what's considered a cold tumor that's hidden from the immune system. Tumors are very smart. They hide themselves from the immune system to a hot tumor. So now there is a, a necrosis. There is a virus. We're creating that microenvironment to really use the tools of our immune system to fight the cancer. The potential benefit long-term is that not only we are using the immune system to kill the cancer, we're educating the immune system to recognize whenever new cancer comes back so that we have those warriors ready to go if the cancer should recur or metastasize. And so for us as a therapy for an early stage cancer, it's ideal because we have a lot of safety, we preserve vision, it can kill the cancer in the eye, and then you have this opportunity to prevent metastatic disease. If you're speaking to someone from outside biopharma discipline and they hear the word virus, do they ever say, oh, that sounds scary? Yes. And I usually say it's not really a virus. It's a virus-like particle. It's like a synthetic virus. And so, and I usually say like one day we'll 3D print it. So it's, it cannot replicate, it cannot infect, it cannot deliver nucleic acids or their own nucleic acids into your cells. So it's very, very safe. What kind of partners are a good fit to Aura Biosciences? The key one I want to highlight, because it's been extraordinary for us, is our academic collaboration with the NIH. The uh, scientific founder of our company is Dr. John Schiller at the NIH. And he had a translational science in his mindset. He had been involved and was one of the initial inventors of the HPV vaccine. He knew the impact that his science and discovery could have in public health. And so that, together with our drive and our willingness to make something happen, was the success of our company. A lot of times I've seen biotech companies fail because the translation of the science or the relationship with the academic center, it's not that good or cannot be sustained throughout the years. For us, it's been one of the greatest assets. So that's the one that I would say it's a, a privilege 
and uh, and it's been fantastic. What kind of people do you find make the best fit and and just are the most helpful to you when you go to hire? Living here in Boston and Cambridge, um, it's the greatest greatest human resource capital that you could find in the entire world. We live in a biotech cluster. We really do. And so it's a competition for talent if you want not convincing them to join the company versus the scarcity of, of talent. There's an abundance. Our criteria usually with uh, you know the first pass being the technical background and experience, assuming that that's an A+. Usually is we want humble people that can really be team players, that they don't think that they know everything or they have to teach everything they know to others, but rather learn from others. So humble is a key asset that we look for. And then, you know, the the passion for science, for doing something new that they, they're not afraid of doing something that they haven't done before. They feel comfortable that whatever they they are knowledge is they can apply it to something new and then always always is the sense of purpose to help patients and to help others because that defines our culture and it's the biggest retention i've found that throughout the years in the highs and in the lows i can retain people if they have a sense of purpose if they think that what they're doing is important if it's not just a paycheck when you try to work on the day-to-day process of figuring out the scientific puzzle and making the company run efficiently, and then also keeping in mind why you're doing it to help patients. Is that something, is that latter part about helping patients, is that something you can keep in mind as you go, or does that something you get to once you achieve the success of having something that's farther down the line? It's a really good question. The first part of building Aura we had the patient in mind, but it was kind of like a cloud, right? Yes, it's our sense of purpose, it's our goal, but but we're dealing with dog studies and pharmacokinetics and animal, uh, animal and, and a lot of science, uh, hard science that sometimes makes you a little bit forget about the patient. Right. The day we dosed our first patient, it radically changed. The patient is the first thing you wake up in the morning, the thing, the first thing you think when you go to bed. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more relevant. And it's the absolute center of the life of the company. It's so interesting. I've told you from the beginning that I was fearless. I've told you that one of the key things in my management is courage. The day we dosed our first patient, I was afraid because there's so much responsibility when you're dealing with a human, um, with a person, with a mother or a father. And um, that doesn't go away. So it is the core. um, And it depends on where the company is. We'll never lose that. What aspects of the industry, the science that fascinates you, whatever it is at this time, what is it that is pulling you forward and saying, oh, I can't wait to find out more. I can't wait to learn more or become a voice in this. Actually, the one thing that I'm really excited about that I see in the future that I don't have now at the company, but I do want to have is the knowledge provided with artificial intelligence. We are humans and we're limited. When we have our clinicians evaluate patients, we have a limited amount of information and we take our decision based on that. 
But especially in the eye, we have so much imaging content. And if we can use some of these tools that are provided by data collection, evaluating images and provide them as a guidance for us as drug developers, but also for early diagnosis of cancer. In, in the eye, as an example, it's one of the key uh, diseases that because the eye is so available, we wear glasses, we, um, you know, we go to the ophthalmologist, we could diagnose these cancers so early we should not allow a late stage cancer to be diagnosed with these tools. So I envision a future where most cancers we can diagnose early and uh, we can treat early. I don't wanna be looking at drug development in terms of months of survival. I would be looking at early development in terms of years, decades, that we've changed the life of patients and that only happens with early, early, early. I'm very, very excited. I think we can do it. It's becoming more available. It's just the, the interface of disciplines that needs to happen now. What would help to make that process you just described happen? What would tend to get in the way of it happening? I think that we just need to make you know some of these technologies less difficult to work with. That usually happens with tech and, and biotech, right? They, they're silos and we need to make them easy. We need to, to, to have them integrate into our iPhones so that I can scan my retina and I can send the image of my retina to a database. And then, you know, there's going to be an algorithm that's going to say, that image starts looking like an early melanoma or a, you know, a stage zero melanoma, but you sh it's, it's that knowledge that should be easy. That's the, the barrier. When it's very complex or very expensive, it, it, it becomes an academic exercise. So it's the integration to make it simple. That's the, the key that needs to happen. And obviously to make it simple and to make it available broadly because we're looking at collection of data. The more data, the more powerful, but that means that a lot of people need to use it. Is working in Cambridge similar to or any different from other biopharma centers where you've, in your career where you've worked? Cambridge is just unique. It really is unique. Um, and some people have asked me, but what is it that it makes it? Why did you move? Right? I had Europe available to me. I had Switzerland. I had London, even Barcelona has a great um, you know, talent pool. I think it's the combination of different disciplines. Like we have the, the leading hospitals of the world in a very small area with the leading academic centers where most of the innovation takes place. So there's a lot, a lot of relationship. And then there's just this desire of entrepreneurs that are driven by life sciences or, or biopharmaceuticals to, to be here. Sometimes I say, would in the 15th century that happened with art in Florence? You had Michelangelo and the schools of Raphael and everyone wanted to go learn from them. That couldn't be replicated anywhere in the world. It just happened in Italy. It, it, was, it was at that time and for a certain reason. It's, uh, it's what has happened in Cambridge I, and, and Boston. And, and it's incredible that we have it. Will it happen in other places? 
for sure, yes, we can try to replicate it. But, um, but right now we have it here. There are many different paths to success in biopharma. People who lead biopharma companies that I've spoken with, some of them come from a business background, some from a science background, some from a legal background. There's lots of different ways because all those are components, right, that have to be accounted for. So my question is, is there anything about being a founder, a scientist as a founder, that makes it either clearer how to get the job done or less clear? I mean, are, is it possible to be unbiased? So, about this? you know, it's such an interesting question. One of my greatest leaders and mentors that I've met, I had the privilege to meet was Henry Tamir. Henry Tamir was the founder of Genzyme, built the greatest biotech company, successful all around for patients and for everyone that worked there. And Henry was not a scientist. And I thought, perhaps if I didn't know or I didn't worry so much about all of the aspects of the science that can go wrong, I would take more better decisions because the decisions would be much gut-driven versus evaluating a, every single aspect of a scientific hypothesis. I don't know the answer. I think that um, they're just extraordinary leaders that lead pharma companies that are economists. Somehow they're extraordinary when they take the help. I don't think there's a rule. That's a, the variety of humanity is just wonderful. How does one learn to either trust one's gut instinct if you're a rational, scientific, a theoretical person? How do you learn to do that? It is a combination of the knowledge you have with the circumstances that surround you. I'll, I'll give you an analogy when they said, how did Einstein discover the theory of relativity? How, how could that happen? Maybe we need to evaluate Einstein's brain when he died. And uh, one of the key things that his family said, Einstein was Einstein because it has his brain surrounded by the life he lived, by the experiences he, he lived, by the circumstances. So I think that that is um, the answer. You know, it's, it's the gut feeling is a combination of your knowledge with the circumstances that you're surrounded at the time. You got to have to have the capacity to accept that you're going to take a decision with very limited information and that, you know, somehow on average, most of the decisions are going to be all right. Elizabeth, how clear is it to people that there are eye cancers for which there are no approved drugs? Ocular oncology is an unknown to many people. One of our key efforts is to raise awareness of this disease and uh, to show that not only from a scientific perspective, but also from a business perspective, as long as you develop a good drug for patients that really need it, there is an excellent business and there is a good return for investors. And most importantly, there's a life-changing impact to the patients we try to serve. So yes, awareness, ocular cancers, they exist and they can be treated. Currently, what are the choices for a patient diagnosed with cancer? In the Unfortunately, eye? it's a radiotherapy or enucleation. Enucleation is remove the eye, give you an artificial eye, which is horrible. Radiotherapy gives you radiation to kill the cancer, but unfortunately the retina, which is this delicate layer that provides vision, uh, is damaged irreversibly with radiotherapy. And throughout the years, you, you become blinded. 
So that's the problem. We don't have anything. We diagnose this disease so early. Uh, we should be able to give something before we just bombard the eye with radiotherapy. And we now have the understanding, the tools, the molecular knowledge to help patients and, and give them a, a first option to preserve vision, treat early, and hopefully preserve life. What do you picture? Do you picture someone with a bit better life, a completely different life? A transformed life, because right now, if you're a cancer patient, a patient with a cancer in your eye, you need to choose between blindness and life. I don't want anyone in the future to have to choose between being blinded or being alive. The fear of blindness is, is one of the greatest ones. Some people would rather die than be blind. I think that if we are successful, we're going to transform the life of these patients and not for one month, for the rest of their lives. So it's one of those that when we go back, we will say proudly, we made it. Ellie, thank you for speaking with me Thank today. you, John. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Right at the start of my conversation with Elizabeth de los Pinos, I heard an uncommon blend of fearlessness and compassion, rooted in a sense of purpose. As Ellie says, you are an entrepreneur because you have that sense of purpose and lack of fear. I wanted to do something big, I decided to do it myself, and I was willing to take the risk. Ellie, like previous guests on BioBoss, has the imagination, courage, and determination that are prerequisites to developing transformative new therapies. But she points out that transformation is a two-way street that has changed her as well. As she says, when you dose your first patient, everything radically changes. The patient is the first thing you're thinking about when you wake up in the morning. The last thing you think about when you go to bed. There's nothing more important. There's so much responsibility when you're dealing with a human, with a person, with a mother or a father, and that doesn't go away. It goes without saying that drug discovery is serious stuff, but when I hear a biopharma leader like Ellie talk about patients, I'm reminded of what's on the line. As Ellie said, we're initially doing this for patients who have cancers in their eyes, who've had no drugs approved for 50 years. We're trying to prevent them from dying. We're also trying to prevent them from going blind. Ellie goes on to say, I don't want to be looking at drug development in terms of months of survival. I want to be looking at decades that have changed the lives of patients. And that's a reminder of why it takes leadership and a whole lot of compassion to pull it all together. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.